it's uh, good to be with you here today in this early service. Welcome to those who are watching online uh, live this morning. Good to be with you. Take your copy of God's Word and be turning to Revelation chapter 11. On Sunday mornings, we're in our study in the book of Revelation, and uh, this morning we've come uh, to the two witnesses, the two witnesses. You know, throughout human history, uh, God has always left himself a witness. God's always left himself uh, a person, persons, or a group of people to testify to who he is throughout the entirety of human history. Think of the antediluvian civilization, those folks that lived before the flood. When you read the account uh, in Genesis, the, the world had become so wicked that God uh, decided he was going to destroy them and start over. Uh, and there was a man named Noah, and God had a witness in Noah. And Noah preached for 120 years. And if uh, you want some encouragement, he preached for 120 years and nobody listened to him. Uh, his family was the only, uh, only people to listen to him and go into the ark. So God left himself a witness before the flood, Noah. And then after the, after the flood, you read in the Old Testament and you have, you have men like Job uh, who knew God and certainly testified of who God is. And you have men like uh, Abraham and, and David and Samuel and all the prophets. And those men uh, were called of God and testified of him throughout the Old Testament. And even in the Old Testament, few people listened. Uh, even Israel departed from God, and God judged them with the captivity of Babylonian captivity. And then you come to the church age. God's left himself a witness today, hasn't he? Uh, Brother Bill just spoke about it, the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, you are God's remnant, if you will. You're, you're that group, if you're saved, whom God's called to testify of who he is. Now, I would suggest to you, if you watch the news and you look at world events today, not a lot of people are listening, are they? Not a lot of people are listening to the gospel but it doesn't diminish our responsibility uh, to testify of who God is and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, when you come to this part of the, of the book of Revelation, you'll re be reminded that uh, it, the context is set in the last half of the tribulation, what Jesus called the great tribulation period, that last three and a half years. And you'll find that even in the tribulation, even in that time when God's witness today is removed, when the church is raptured uh, and there are no more uh, gospel-preaching churches because the, the true church, those who are saved, will be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. God will leave himself witnesses in the tribulation. There will be the 144,000 Jews who were sealed, and they go around preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in this passage, we find that, that God's going to raise up two particular witnesses, two men who will be uh, endued with power to do miracles, and they will uh, grab the world's attention and and they will testify of who God is right before the, the, the last woe or the seventh trumpet and the coming of the rapid succession of the bold judgments. So let's pick up the passage, if you will, in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 11. And, and this chapter begins with an interesting thing. John is invited to take part in the vision. Look at the first two verses there in Revelation 11. John said that I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Verse 2, But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now it begins there where John's given a, uh, like a ruler. It's a reed, and uh, these reeds were used as measuring devices because they were light and they were straight and they were steady. And so he's, this angel says to John, Look, Take this reed and measure the temple in Jerusalem. Now, that's interesting uh, because there's no temple in Jerusalem right now. So what does that tell us? It tells us that in the first part of the tribulation, 
uh, the Jews are going to rebuild the temple. Now, that's going to be an interesting thing because uh, right now there's this building called the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim uh, mosque, and it's where the temple's supposed to be on the Temple Mount. Now, today, obviously, if the Jews were to knock that thing down uh, and, and try to build a temple there, it would be, uh, it would be, be bad. Okay? It would cause a lot of conflict. However, in the first part of the tribulation, remember we learned early on that the Antichrist is going to make a league with the Jews, with the Hebrews. And it is in that league, because of his power, they're going to be able to rebuild the temple. And so they're going to rebuild it in the first part of the tribulation. And this angel says, John, what I want you to do is take this measuring device, and I want you to measure this temple. But notice there's no measurements given. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not, I'm not really much of a carpenter. Some of you guys are probably really handy. Uh, when, I, when I make things, I was working on a floor not long ago, and I measured, and I even put my glasses on. I measured, and I had it down to the you know, the 16th, and I'm marking it off, and I go cut the thing, and I come back, and it's like big gap there. It's like magic. I don't know how that happens. I mean, you know what I mean? You measure it, and you cut it, and you come back, and there's a gap there. And so I measured it again, and, and it's, you know, it was something like it was supposed to be five and three-eighths, and I cut it four and three-eighths. And, you know, I guess that's why they say measure twice and cut once. I'm not sure. But the fact is, I'm not much of a, I'm not much of a carpenter. It takes me several efforts to get the board cut the right length. There's no measurements here. John's giving this reading. You don't, you don't find any numbers. It's not this many feet and this many furlongs. Why? Because it's not about the measurements of the building. What this pictures here, what, what God is doing, telling this angel, telling John to measure the temple is he's measuring off ownership. He's measuring off what is his, his remnant. Who is his? Notice that he says measure the inside of the temple, but don't measure the outer court. What's that mean? Well, think about the temple. If you, well, you know the temple from the New Testament. There was the Holy of Holies, and nobody went in there but the high priest once a year because the, the, the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments were, they were in there, and nobody was allowed to go in there except the high priest once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. Then there was the holy place where only the, the priests went, and they did their, their ministry of making the offerings and the, and the brazen altar there. And then there was the courtyard, the court where the Jews could gather. And then there was the outer court where the Gentiles stayed. Now listen, in the time of Jesus, there was a sign that said anybody who wasn't Hebrew who went past that sign and went into the court where the Jews were were considered defiling the temple and the Romans had given them permission to execute them. So in this measurement here that the angel says to John, what he's saying is I want you to measure those on the inside of the temple because they're the remnant. In other words, God set aside a part of the Jewish nation that are going to be his remnant that will go into the kingdom age, the millennial age. And these Jews are saved. They've trusted him. Now, on the outside, he said, don't measure that because the outside of the temple, that courtyard is being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles for 42 months. Now, that's interesting as well because you see some numbers. 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years are all the same. It's the same period of time. And, and, and what God's saying is the time of the Gentiles will run through the end of the tribulation. Have you ever heard of the term the time of the Gentiles? The time of the Gentiles actually began with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Solomon's temple. And since that time, since that time, Jerusalem's been tread underfoot by the Gentiles. The temple's been tread underfoot by the Gentiles, and it's been the time of the Gentiles. Well, that time will come to an end at the end of the tribulation. At this point, it's in its last three and a half years. And so God said through this angel to John, look, 
measure the temple, measure those on the inside because they are my remnant. They're, they're mine. They're saved. But don't measure the outside because they've got 42 months to do their worst and it's going to be over. Did you know God has a remnant today? You know what a remnant is? I'm not much of a sower either. Although I did do that one time in Homebeck. I sowed a pencil holder. But a remnant stuff left over, right, from the crowd, a remnant, a piece. You know, you're, if you're saved, you're a remnant of God. Among all humanity, most of humanity has rejected God. Most of humanity has turned its back on God. Most of humanity has gone after sin and gone after the way of man. But there's a remnant. If you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, you're his remnant today. You're in the church of Jesus Christ. You're his called out. You're his elect. You're his redeemed. During the tribulation, God's going to have a remnant, and he's going to protect them. And he's going to keep them, and Antichrist won't be able to kill them. Listen, I am thankful to be God's remnant today. And we have a job, and that is to tell others about Jesus. Even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of chaos and society and, and all the civil unrest, our focus has remained on telling people about Jesus Christ. Because, listen, I know this. Jesus is the only one who can fix what's wrong with man. And that's give him a new heart, forgive his sin, and make him a new creation in Christ. So God had a remnant. Now, what about these two witnesses? We pick them up in verses 3 and 4. So John's measured the temple. God said, here's my remnant. But God doesn't forget about the rest of the world. He has two witnesses along with 144,000 to tell the world who he is. Look at verses 3 and 4. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Same thing, three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. We know that in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, God's going to raise up two men along with the 144,000. These two men are going to be uh, endued with power from God to do miracles. You'll see that in just a moment. They'll be able to do miracles. And listen, can you imagine, just think about it for a moment, with uh, the news agencies are still going to be going strong in the tribulation. We're still going to have all the news channels and the, and the talking heads. and all, We're going to have all that stuff. We won't. We'll be in heaven. They will. Okay. And those things will be active. And these two witnesses are going to be empowered by God, and they're going to do miracles. And I can just imagine... The, the news is going to be tracking their every move, everything they say, everything they do. It'll be just like, uh, you know, just this thing. It'll be one of their lead stories. And God said, I'm going to give them power to prophesy. Now, prophecy doesn't mean always telling the future. Prophecy means proclaiming. When you share the gospel, you're prophesying. It doesn't make you a prophet, I don't suppose, but uh, in the sense of foretelling the future, but you are a prophet in that you proclaim the truth. These men will be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of hell on earth. They'll be proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. In fact, God describes them as the olive trees with the lampstands. You say, where in the world have I seen that before? Well, I'll help you. Zechariah chapter 4, okay? In Zechariah chapter 4, there's a description of some lampstands and some olive trees and, and tubes running from the olive trees to the lampstands. Why would you have that picture? Olive oil was used to burn the lamps. It was the oil used for the flames and the lamps. And, and normally the priest had to go in and put oil in the lamps so they don't go out. But what if you had an olive tree that's producing the oil and you just plug a tube into that olive tree and you run it over to the lamp 
You got perpetual forever. You got oil. You never have to fill the thing up. It's always flowing from the tree. The picture is this. God is going to so empower these men that they're like the lamps connected to the power source. They're connected to God, and they're going to burn bright. You know, you're connected in the same way to God today if you're saved. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You have all the power of heaven residing in you in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. We, we are, in this analogy, connected to God. We're plugged into the power source of heaven. You know what the priest said? Well, why do so many Christians today so powerless? That's a good question. We shouldn't be, and it's a shame that we are. But I'll tell you why. We're plugged into the power source, but too many Christians today are too engrossed in the world and too plugged into the world at the same time and too much sin. You see, God, God's power is only manifested in us to the degree that we're willing for it to be manifested and the, willing that we, and the degree to which we are willing to serve God. These men will be plugged into the power source and they're going to serve God. Now's the time I would suggest to you, and I don't have time to, to go off on this extensively, but I'll tell you, if there's ever a day in, in, in my lifetime and in your lifetime that we need to be empowered by God and stand up for the cause of Christ, it's today. It's in a society today. It's in a, it's in a world today that's, that's so engrossed in sin and so moved away from God and so resistant to the things of God. Today's a day. This is a time that we ought to be standing up for the cause of Christ, not belligerently and not unkindly and not without love, but with resolute determination to speak the truth. Not worried about what will happen if we do, not worried about who's going to get mad, not worried about what it's going to cost us, but just to say the truth and to stand up and point people to Jesus Christ. That's what we ought to do. These men uh, were empowered by God and will be empowered by God during that time. Now, a description of how they're going to be able to minister is given to us in verses 5 and 6. Look at it. It says, And if anyone wants to harm them, well, who would want to harm them? Well, the Antichrist, for one. He's not going to like their preaching. He's not going to like what they're saying, and so he's going to send people to kill them. Notice what will happen. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Well, first we're told that in this period, in the last three and a half years, Antichrist will want to kill these two men because of their preaching. You say, well, Pastor, will it really come to the point where people will want to kill Christians because they talk about Jesus? Yes, there will. Do you know today, right now, and, I'm, and again, I don't have time. I want to finish the rest of this, this chapter. Right now in California, and that's a long ways away, they've told churches you can't meet. And John MacArthur said, well, we're meeting. He's 81 years old. And they're threatening to arrest him. I mean, think about that. In the United States of America, the right to gather is protected by the Constitution. The government can't do that. They cannot do that. The Constitution says they can't do it. They're threatening to arrest an 81-year-old preacher. Why? Because he's going to stand up in front of a group of people and preach the gospel. Listen, all I'm, all I'm doing is drawing the comparison that when these guys are walking around during the tribulation in the last three and a half years proclaiming the gospel, Antichrist is going to want to kill them. It's going to be way beyond, we're going to arrest you, we're going to turn the power off your building, we're going to turn the water off your building, which I don't think is legal to do either. 
no lawyer, but you know what? I paid my bill. You can't turn my power off. In the tribulation, they're going to want to kill these guys. But notice what God does. When people come to kill them, they speak and fire comes down and consumes them. Well, that'll get your attention, won't it? Preachers preaching, well, I'm here to kill you. And boom, fire comes down, burns them, you know, poof, they're gone. You think, you think the news channel is going to be all over that? Man, that'll be, on every, that'll be on every TV set. That'll be beamed around the world. As these guys walk around preaching, doing miracles, people will hate them. Most of the people in the world will hate them. For what? Listen, think about this. For what? Why will they be so hated? Simply because they will say, Jesus Christ is Lord, and you need to confess your sin, you need to repent, and you need to be saved. A simple message of grace will cause the world to hate them. A simple message of grace will cause the world to want to kill them, and God will protect them. No one will be able to hurt them. Well, now, who are these two guys? I know you want to know. You're just waiting to get there. Well, we don't, it doesn't tell us. However, it gives us a hint. It says that, now it says here that we've seen these guys before. Notice what it says in verse 6. Uh, they have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Okay, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. In other words, these guys look like two other fellows we've seen in the Bible, don't they? About Elijah and Moses, right? I mean, Elijah preached and proclaimed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, and it didn't rain in Israel for three and a half years. And then when the king saw him, he said, you're the one that troubles Israel. And they said, oh, no, you're the one troubling Israel, not me. And then he said, look out over the water, and you'll see a little cloud, and it looked like a hand, and then the rain came. And then, of course, the plagues, turning water to blood, that was Moses and, and Egypt. So listen, you say, well, is, it, is this Elijah and Moses come back? Very well could be. You say, well, what other evidence do we have? Well, in Matthew, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, guess who were the two guys standing with him? Moses and Elijah. And Elijah kind of left here in a unique way, didn't he? He didn't, he didn't really leave here like regular Don. He kind of, he, he rode out of here in the first rocket ship, okay, ever. And Moses, you say, well, Moses died regularly. Well, yeah, kind of. Yeah, if you want to call regular God going, come up on the mountain, you're going to die. And then God supernaturally buried him where nobody could find him. That was kind of unique, okay? So you got these two guys uh, uh, of Old Testament, uh, you know, ministry, and I believe God's going to raise them up and bring them back. And I think that's who these guys are. Now, we don't have any proof of that, but I just believe that's who it is, given the evidence of what they'll be able to do. Well, here's going to be, if you will, if it is Elijah and Moses, these two Old Testament godly men, these two Old Testament saints are going to be walking around preaching the gospel. And the Antichrist is going to want to kill them, and he's going to try to kill them. Now, at the end of their ministry, something interesting happens. God allows them to be killed. Look at verses 7 to 10. When they finish their testimony, pause right there for a moment. That's an interesting concept in itself. When they finished their ministry, meaning, meaning, God in his sovereignty had predetermined, here's how long you're going to minister. And during that time, you're going to be invincible because you're going to call down fire from heaven and anybody who tries to kill you, you're going to burn them up. And you're going to be able, and listen, I, I suspect if, during that last three and a half years of tribulation, Elijah probably turned the rain off again. He probably, you know, he probably said, well, it ain't going to rain, which would have only exacerbated the loss of crops and all the stuff that already happened 
And then Moses, he's walking around bringing plagues and speaking. Man, I hate these guys. And God said, during the three and a half years while you're preaching, nobody's going to be able to harm you. But there's going to come a time God determined that I'm going I'm to allow you to be killed. You say, well, what, what, what benefit do we get from that? Listen, our days, your days and my days are numbered by God. When you began and when you're going to end. And God has determined when those dates are. And God has determined your life in between. God has appointed a point, a time for us to leave here. My question is, are you ready when that time comes? Are you at peace when that time comes? See, young people will say, oh, man, I'm young. I got forever. Nah, not really. Not really. You probably got longer than I got, unless you get hit by a bus today. But, uh, but no, you're leaving here, and God knows when that time is. I would suggest to you today, be ready for that time. Look, these guys magnificent, powerful preachers during that time, they're going to die. God's going to allow them to get killed. Notice what it says. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Well, what it means by the beast out of the bottomless pit, Antichrist is demonically empowered during the tribulation. You understand that. The demons out of the abyss empower him, and he, he's doing the bidding of Satan. And he's going to, to be able to overcome these two witnesses at the end of the ministry, and he's going to kill them. He's going to have them murdered. Now notice verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of this great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Well, we know that's Jerusalem. Then those uh, from the people's, uh, then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Well, we know it's in Jerusalem. These two mighty men of God, maybe Elijah and Moses, Antichrist will be allowed to overcome them. They will be murdered. And then in complete contempt for these men, they'll leave their bodies laying in the street. Now, again, let's go back to what we know today of our news outlets I can only imagine in my mind as I was studying this and writing this week, there'll be some, some news reporter standing in Jerusalem with their microphone every day, three or four times a day. Here are their bodies. Here are those guys. They're dead. And they'll be reporting with rejoicing in their voice and reporting with excitement that these guys who had made life even more difficult for them are now dead and that these guys who had preached the gospel so faithfully are now dead. All the eyes of every tongue and tribe around the world will see that these men have died. And in contempt, it was a great uh, dishonor to those who were killed in ancient times to not bury their bodies, to leave them lay out on the ground. It would even be that way today. And so in great contempt, they leave their bodies out for the whole world to view. And then even more interesting, notice that it says there in verse 10 that the world will rejoice. They'll send gifts to one another. I can almost imagine world leaders and governors and mayors of town sending gifts to one another and phone calls of celebration saying, man, aren't you glad those two are gone? Aren't you glad we don't have to listen to them anymore? Aren't you glad no more plagues and no more hurt? The world today celebrates 
when the church is damaged. The world today celebrates and rejoices when something bad happens to a Christian. The world today celebrates when a Christian fails or falls. The world looks for every opportunity. Isn't it interesting, just by way of thought, as I look through this this week, that the world can live in every kind of sin imaginable and justify it, make it normal, say it's okay, you know, it's just the way I am, it's okay, you can't judge me. But if a Christian fails, if a person who's saved fails in one of those sins, they vilify us and they come after us. Why? Same, listen, what I'm sharing with you is the same motive that will be present in the tribulation as present in the world today. The same vitriol and the same hatred for the things of Christ is in the world today. And the persecution against the church is only going to grow as we move closer to the time of the rapture and the tribulation. Because all the things that will happen in full in the tribulation are like birth pangs as we move toward them now in this church age. So these men are hated, they're killed, and people high-fiving and rejoicing and congratulating one another. But I like the next thing that God tells us here. Okay, Look at verses 11 to 14. Now after three and a half days, so now think about that. Their bodies lay out in the street for three and a half days. They probably don't look very good by then. Matter of fact, I can only imagine their bodies had been abused a little bit. Maybe, maybe abused because they're angry, okay? So they're three and a half days being dead. Notice this, the breath of life, verse 11, from God entered them. It's hard not to do a running commentary here because it's so good. The breath of life from God entered into them. Well, where'd you see that before? God made Adam and breathed in him the breath of life. The God who created us, listen, death is no obstacle for him. He breathes life into people. Every human being that's born has physical animation because God breathed life into them. God gave them life. They became a living soul at the moment of conception. And when God saves someone, he gives us spiritual life, makes us a new living creature in Jesus Christ where we were once dead. Now we're alive. That God, the creator God, will breathe into these men who had been dead for three days the breath of God. Now notice this, verse 11, and they stood on their feet, and I like this part, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Now just get this picture. You know, Susie Reporter's there. It's day three. Aren't we glad they're dead? The cameraman's on her, and the bodies are behind her. And suddenly those guys stand up. Hmm. Well, that'd be good. That'd be awesome. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to celebrate from heaven when that happens. What about you? Those guys are going to stand up. And the whole world's going to see it because it's going to be on camera. Matter of fact, I suspect, you know how it is today. You can go on, um, I think you can go on YouTube. There's cameras around the world, right? And you can watch Times Square, or you can watch uh, Big Ben in London, or you can, I mean, you can pick a place and they got the camera on there. Man, they'll have a camera on them guys all the time. People be on their YouTube channels watching these dead bodies and celebrating, and then they're going to get up. They're going to stand up. God's going to raise them from the dead. 
Now look at verse 12. And they heard a voice, a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Verse 13. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. As these men are raised from the dead, these two great witnesses, God from heaven calls out to them, says, come up here, and they ascend in a cloud of God's glory. Let me tell you something. The world is not worthy of some of the men and women who've walked on this planet and served Jesus Christ. The world's not worthy of some men and women who have faithfully served God as these two witnesses will. And the world will reject them and kill them, and God will just say, you come up here. One of these days, God's going to say that to his church. Jesus is going to say, well, you've been there long enough, been 2,020 years so far. Just come up here, and we'll wrap this thing up. These two witnesses are called to God heaven, and, and the enemy sees them. And then within an hour, a great earthquake strikes Jerusalem, and a tenth of the city is destroyed, and 7,000 people die. And it says some people here are worshiping God. Who is that? That's the remnant. The remnant whom God marked off in the beginning of the chapter, they love the Lord. And they're, and they're happy to see God doing what he's doing, bringing uh, justice and judgment against sin. And so they rejoice and they worship God. And then many are afraid. The lost are afraid. Doesn't it make you wonder this? If lost men and women in that time are going to so easily be able to recognize that the God of heaven is speaking out of heaven. They hear him. They see him. They see these men raised from the dead. They see God raise them up to heaven, take them away in a cloud of his glory. And they're afraid of God's power and they're afraid of his judgment. Does it make you just wonder, why won't they repent? Why won't, why won't they just bend the knee? Why won't they just say, you know, we've really been trying to buck him for a long time and it's a losing proposition. I mean, you know, the world's a disaster and, and, and judgment and the witnesses. So, you know what, I'm just going to get saved. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't think you ought to be the smartest purpose person in the world to figure that out. You know why they won't? Listen, we've talked about this before. When a person is so given themselves over to sin and rebellion against God and given themselves so, so completely over to sin, God then turns them over to their sin and they won't ever be saved. I don't care what happens. They won't come. They just won't come. They just won't be saved. They just won't believe. Why? Because they love their sin too much. They would rather hide from God and ask the mountains to kill them rather than bow the knee and repent. Well, then he says the last thing here in verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Remember the... Fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet are called the woe trumpets, the woe judgments. Well, the seventh trumpet is the last of the woe that's about to be sounded. And when the seventh trumpet sounds, the warning is here. The end will come quickly. The bold judgments, the seven bold judgments that remain, I believe, will be at the very end of that last three and a half years, and they will come rapidly. In fact, they're so severe that Jesus said back in Matthew on the Olivet Discourse, he said, if God did not cut that time short of the great tribulation, no, no men would survive. No life would survive. No soldiers. In other words, Jesus said it's going to be so bad. God's judgment is going to be so hot and so severe at the end of that thing. Unless God cut it off, nobody would be left alive. That's what's to follow. And so the warning is the woe judgments are coming. 
Let me close with these thoughts this morning. God is incredibly patient right now, isn't he? I mean, incredibly, long-suffering. God desires all men to be saved. In this church age, in this age of grace, we are his witnesses. I want to encourage you. You share the gospel with people and you say they don't listen and you talk to them about God and you say they don't listen. That's between them and God. Our job is simply to tell them. Now listen, you can't live, we can't live a lifestyle that looks like the world that didn't talk about Jesus and expect to have any power in it. We have to live a life that testifies of who we are in Christ. In other words, they have to see the way we live, empowered by the Holy Spirit, so that the gospel has effect, so that it has believability, so that it has credibility. We can't live in the same sins as the world and then try to tell people about Jesus because it's hypocritical. We are those witnesses today. It's very possible that a time is coming soon when it will cause us to be incarcerated, to follow God and do what he says. It's very possible there's coming a time when we might be like Peter. He stands in front of the Sanhedrin and they say, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore, we forbid you. And Peter says, will you decide whether I should do what you say or do what God says? As for me, I'm going to do what God says. It's rapidly coming to the point where we're going to have to make that decision. Let us be faithful because God has a plan and it's coming. Are you ready? Are you ready if Jesus were to rapture the church today? Are you ready if God were to rapture the church and this tribulation period begin? I pray you would be saved today and not get left here. Because most of the people who get left here are going to die. They're going to die in tribulation. Are you saved this morning? Are you online who are watching video live? Are you saved today? Have you bowed the knee to Jesus? Because he's Lord. He's God. Have you bowed the knee to him? Have you asked him to forgive your sin? He said, whosoever will call on his name, he'll forgive. If you'll, if you'll bow the knee, if you'll confess your sin, repent, ask him to save you. Jesus died on the cross so you can be saved. Would you pray this morning? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for revealing to us what's going to happen. Thank you that you have uh, promised a church, a rapture, Lord, and a, and a time with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. God, I pray today if there's someone under the hearing of your word, under the hearing of this passage, and they've never been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, right now they might just pause wherever they are watching this video or watching it live in their living room right now. And God, they might just bow their head and say, oh God, I don't know about my salvation and I don't know if I'm really saved, but I want to be. God, I'm sorry for my sin. I know I'm a sinner, and God, I'm sorry. I believe, Jesus, you died to pay for my sin on the cross. You rose again the third day, and you're alive right now. Of all the faith I have, God, I confess my sin and ask you to save me right now. Forgive me. Save my soul. God, you will save anybody who's willing to ask. We pray you do that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. I'll be standing down front as we sing one verse. Look, if I can pray with you or help you, you come on the first verse. My